Welcome to Drinks, Jokes, and Storytelling, the ESPN for all things comedy, with your hosts, Mark Riccadonna and Richie Byrne. And now, grab a drink and welcome Mark Riccadonna and Richie Byrne. Folks, welcome to Drinks, Jokes, and Storytelling. I'm your host, Mark Rigadon, and with me as always... Richie Byrne. And we have a special co-host. Hey, I'm in the building. It's Tom wow. from Down to the Felt. How are you guys? Good. Tommy Tom. dressed exactly the same. No, no, I'm like a cartoon character. It's always the same outfit. I'm the over only one who brings... I change shirts. I'm the only one. You don't... I wear the same clothes almost every That's day. True. So That's true. I have like four outfits. <laughs> um, but this one's going to the garbage. I just... Tore it on a door. It's so, a nice uh, shirt. I like yeah. it. So that'll anyway. be that. But anyhow, special uh, show. We have a very special show, and special we have a very special. We have special. a co-host. We got a special guest coming in. We're very excited for this. Uh, <laughs> what the hell is that? <laughs> we don't have the VR thing set up, yeah, or else no you would have just saw this vaudeville moment. I feel bad. Our guest is wondering what the hell just happened. Somebody walked in and did a very vaudeville, like exit stage left. <laughs> um, but we have a, a very special guest. Uh, I, I met him in Atlanta, and uh, I can't believe he's actually coming on. This is awesome, folks. Dan Passernek's here, everybody. Hey, hey. hey. Uh, thanks so much, guys. Hey, Big Kahuna, how you doing? I'm good, <laughs> sir. How you doing? Excellent, excellent. Thanks for letting these other guys crash. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> so, how you doing? What's going on? Oh, you know, not much. Uh, what'd you have for breakfast this morning? Uh, nothing actually. <laughs> I, I, I think I should rectify that. I probably should. You, you should. You know, it's the most important meal of the day. Oh, that is true. That is I, very true. I love Dan's only going to talk to Big Kahuna. Right? So what, is, there anything, that, is there anything you want me to ask the guys for you? Uh, no, it's all right. You know, if they want to chime in. You know. <laughs> Thank you, Dan, for letting me be on my show. <laughs> no, don't worry about it, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we'd love to th- uh Show some appreciation to Shared Universe, who is yeah, letting us yes. use their awesome studio yes. and our producer, coolest Kahuna, shared workspace ever. Who Dan yes. is already already better friends with than us. So yes, that's true. <laughs> and then we were speaking about breakfast. I was saying maybe we could do a liquid breakfast because this is drinks, jokes, and storytelling. <laughs> well, so what are we drinking today? We start every show with, with a, a drink. drink. And Dan, I saw you take a sip of something. What are you drinking tonight? Oh, I'm uh, I'm, I'm hitting the hard stuff because it's the evening. This is this is not ordinary seltzer. This is lemon lime seltzer. Wow. There you go. <laughs> Knocking delivered them by the responsible and socially distant people of Peapod. Right here, right here in beautiful New Jersey. Wow. There you go. I love it. Richie, yeah. well, what are you partaking? I'm not getting crazy like Dan. Well, yeah. I'm just drinking a little bit. We got this from Gemini. Yes. In, a, in an earlier on. show, the great John Lombardi. And uh, it's uh, Johnny Walker Scotch uh, Game of Thrones Limited Edition. And Game of Thrones Limited Edition? Oh, jeez. I wouldn't. Yeah, I, don't finish the bottle, it'll end badly. <laughs> oh, oh, oh my god wow. oh it was right there it's that been there was all awesome. this time oh. all this time yeah, yeah. Just I, right do me a favor do me a favor can i have a you know a little a peter dinklage of that give me just a short one <laughs> actually 
The bottle is in the shape of Peter Dinklage. So <laughs> I guess we'll never get Peter Dinklage on the show. Now. We wouldn't anyway. That's true. Um, and what are you drinking? I am having a, it's called a 007XX East Coast Double Indian Pale Ale. Uh, it's here from the uh, Carton Brewing right here in New Jersey, cool. baby. Hey. And what, so, are you, what are you doing, brother? You're doing I'm going cider. cider. Cider from the tap. Tommy's got I'm not the cider. classy. I'm cider, cider in a we, solo cup. We actually have <laughs> cider here at the studio in a, yeah. in a, in a tap. It's very nice. It's very yeah. Nice. So, we're, we're doing cheers, cheers everybody. Cheers. Salute. As we your health, big kahuna. Your health, kahuna. <laughs> Thank you. And as we have our drink, the other thing we love to do is tell a joke. Right. So we're going to ask Dan if he has a joke for us today. Hang on a sec. Honey, is Abby in the room? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, recently I was having a number of exchanges with uh, – oh, hang on. I'm getting a message, a message from Paul Provenza who's saying the StreamYard shit isn't working. What is wrong with Paul in StreamYard? I don't understand. He was so mad that we were going to use StreamYard. He goes, it doesn't work. And I go, every other day. I'm trying to join you, but the StreamYard is bullshit, and it sucks, and I give up. Wow. Well, I hope angry. he doesn't mean I'm angry. Hopefully he smokes a joint or something. <laughs> right. All right. Do you want me to help sort this out, or would you like a joke right now? I'll go no, for the joke. No, no we, we want, want the, the joke. joke. Let's go with big, the joke. Yeah, right. Kahuna will uh, sort it out. All right. Well, I don't know if you're doing any editing, but if you are, I'll start this clean for you. Uh, so I was corresponding uh, extensively with Paul Reiser in the making of this project that Provenza and I have been working on. And we were going back and forth with favorite jokes that involve old Jews. And let's just say there's no shortage of them. <laughs> um, so I will give you... a. One of my favorites, um, because this is one that doesn't seem to get uh, passed around as much, and so I'd like to sort of get this one into the rotation, if I may. Little old Jewish lady sitting home, it's late at night, and the phone rings. It's dark. She's got one lone light. She creeps over to the phone. She picks it up. She goes, Hello? Guy on the other end of the phone says, oh, oh, baby, I'm going to come over there and I'm going to fuck you and I'll stick my tongue in your ass and I'll lick your pussy and I'm going to jam my cock down your throat. You're going to love every bit of it. Little old lady goes, all this you can tell from just hello? <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's your clean one. Now let's hear the dirty one. <laughs> that is so riser. I love it. I'll give you the clean one if you want a clean one. You, you can give us uh, as many as you want. That was a great one. Okay. okay. So 80-year-old Jewish man, barely five feet tall, skinny like this, goes in to interview for a job as a lumberjack. Giant, six foot five, goyish a guy, built like a sequoia, standing there, sees this little old Jewish man comes up to him and goes, You understand that we're looking for men to be lumberjacks. 
Oh, lumberjack schmumberbeck. I've been a lumberjack since before you were born, you little pisher. Goes, oh, yeah? So where have you worked? Where have I worked? You ever heard of the Sahara Forest? Says the Sahara Forest. You mean the Sahara Desert? He goes, sure, now. <laughs> so you're talking about doing uh, Jewish jokes. Did you know about the the Broadway show, Old Jews? Oh, yeah, because it started as it started as a like a like a viral video sensation. Yeah, yeah. Oh. It's absolutely one of my favorite things. Richie, do you know about that? I know of it, but I, I don't remember who's in it. It's Well, it started out, they just had random people, right? It wasn't celebrity-driven, right? Uh, I, I actually never saw the, the live show, but uh, I did see certainly, uh, look, the, the ones that I always loved were just uh, civilians, just real yeah. old telling jokes. But every once in a while, you'd get someone that was kind of notable who would jump in. I think Richard Kind did one, if I recall. Oh uh, yeah, you have to have Richard Kind. And what? It's on. It's on video. Or well, it used to be on YouTube, but they took it down because it became a Broadway show. Oh really? But well, how is it a Broadway show? I mean, it, 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 I didn't see the show either, but it. it they were telling you probably old won't Jewish be able to see it until 2021. Here, I'll, I'll give you one more. I got this one from Gilbert Gottfried. So you're really getting it from, from the source. <laughs> Buckle in. Okay. So a man goes into a hotel in sort of the resort area in Florida. He's filling out the registration card, and a little little old lady bent over, comes over to him, and she kind of pokes at him because Mr. Mr. Who are you? I've never seen you here before. I know everybody. Who are you? He goes, well, there's a reason you ain't never seen me before. I just got out of prison. I said, prison? Oh, my. So what was you doing in prison? He says, well, if you must know, 40 years ago, I took an axe and I chopped up my wife into 14 pieces and I buried her in 14 graves. And I just got out of the joint. She looks at him for a second. She goes, oh, so you're single. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite thing in That's the great. world. Man. I great. love jokes. Three jokes to choose from. You can pick any one of those you like. I love That's it. Great. <laughs> I don't know why you said he wasn't funny. <laughs> uh, at the end of you know, at the end of that joke, you gotta add. You gotta add. Oh, you should meet my daughter. <laughs> oh my you know what? This whole day was worth it just to see Christian do a Jewish. Uh, yeah. Oh, you That's should good. meet my daughter. Oh God. <laughs> so leave me alone, Richie. <laughs> it's Timmy. Yeah. So Dan, you grew up L.A. Born and raised in L.A. Yeah. And you grew up watching a lot of these old comedies. Oh yeah, what? I mean, I was an ins I'm still an insomniac. I was always been an insomniac. So uh, I like to say KTLA movies till dawn was my first film school. So you know, my parents would put me to bed, and then when I was, you know, fairly convinced that they were asleep, I'd go tiptoe out of my room. I'd turn on the TV. I'd sit this close to the TV, and I'd watch. If it was like. Okay, there's four Mike Marx Brothers movies. 
I'm in for the night. I'm going to watch all the Marx Brothers movies, four yeah. Danny Kay movies, four Jerry Lewis movies, W.C. Fields. I love W.C. Fields, just all of that stuff. So, uh, and then I started stealing my parents' comedy albums after that. Um, yeah, this is this is this is all I have ever loved. Could you remember the first one you heard? Like the first one that had like that impact on you? The first comedy album? Yeah, absolutely. So they had an album that was called innocuously enough, The Comedians. And it was as generic looking as the title would imply. It was like a sampler platter. And there were <laughs> seven or eight different comedians just selected routines. So it was Lenny Bruce, Joan wow. Rivers, wow. Rodney Dangerfield, Buddy Hackett, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner, Red Fox. Wow. I'm trying to think who else. But I mean, I remember every one of those routines. Um, wow. And the Lenny Bruce routine, I, I have to tell you, I don't even know how I could have appreciated how brilliant that was, but it was the Father Flotsky's Triumph routine, which is the uh, the prison break. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, keep in mind, I'm seven years old, six, seven years old when I stole this album. And it's got such, you know, gorgeous, you know, lines in it like, all right, Dutch, we'll meet all of your demands, except the vibrators. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I could have thought that meant. <laughs> do you still have the record? I do. I do. do you I, really? I have every comedy album I've ever owned. I have thousands of comedy albums. Wow. Really? How I, rare I have thousands of comedy albums, and I would say hundreds of them that are signed. Wow. I've You're spent like 40 years amassing as many signed comedy albums as you will ever find in any place ever. I am, let's put it this way. I am shocked. I've been married for 27 years. I, and I, I, I don't know how that happened because <laughs> you had to meet her on the way to a signing or a purchase of an album in its store. All I can tell you is all of the signed albums are on the third floor of this house because when my husband and I first moved in again, moved in together when we were first dating, this is out in LA. I remember her walking through, waving her hands across the walls with all my collectibles and posters and signed albums and everything that was all over all the walls. And she went, Oh, this crap's going to go. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like, we need a bigger house. You, uh, you can have the first two floors. But, you, you're not, but you're not a comic yourself as far as you're more of a producer. I was a comic for a while, yeah. You, were, you did do stand-up. I did. I did during, during the comedy boom of the 80s. The 80s? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Well, what? Oh, I'm sorry. Were you out in L.A. only? Or yeah, were you I started in L.A., I was at the store in the era when uh, I was working with guys like Sam Kinison. I was just going to say Kinison, I bet. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. great. Wow. Now I've got, I've got some Kinison stories. I, I, I was at the record release party uh, for his first album, Louder Than Hell, which I want to say was 85 or 86, maybe 86. And it was in the bungalow at the Chateau Marmont where John Belushi OD. Oh wow, yeah. Wow. yeah. That, that that was a deliberate choice. Wow. Was it really? Was, yeah. So snorting you... lines, snorting lines off of a hardcover copy of Bob Woodward's book Wired about the death of John Belushi. 
like rails this long going, come and get me, motherfucker. Wow. <laughs> I hope you got it signed that it's in your collection. Wow. I, we would send you up to the third floor to bring it down right now. That book. <laughs> the, the book of the cocaine. <laughs> Both, if he's got it. Both. Yeah, no, I don't. Some of that's not uh, not around anymore. <laughs> he's just getting over the hangover. So, what what got you into it? Like, what was your first step into comedy? Well, like I say, because I was an insomniac, I, I think. Well, first of all, it's just the endorphins of just laughing, and and particularly. My relationship with my dad was so much, you know, bonding over comedy. Um, so, you know, whatever I saw him laughing at, I was like, what's that? So, I mean, like, I would sneak out of bed and he'd be up watching The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and I would watch the comedians with him, you know. And so I saw all of those great comedians in the 70s. Um, I don't know. I was completely fascinated by all of it. And then by the late 70s, uh, I discovered the Dr. Demento radio show. And that was like, yeah. that was like going through the looking glass. That was, you know, absolutely like the portal to a whole new universe of amazing shit. Uh, and uh, I wound up, I think really the first thing that I did to pursue this other than just be a huge fan and a collector was I made a record for the Dr. Demento show 40 years ago, actually. Wow. 40 years ago this year, I made my record for the Dr. Demento show. Wow. That's yeah. awesome. So, so you, you started to get into stand-up. And, like, how how far along were you when you decided to maybe pull out a little? Because, like, you're... You mean stand-up. Yeah, from performing. <laughs> I got um, that. Uh, thanks so much, Billy. Um, <laughs> you, and, you and Steve are right on track. <laughs> Um, well, I, so I got into stand-up completely by accident. I was working as a summer intern at Paramount Pictures when I was 16. So this is the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to work probably in, in television. Um, that was really what I was excited about. And so I was interning at Paramount Pictures, and I started going to the comedy clubs with friends that I'd made in the casting department at Paramount. And I was just thrilled to be not only hanging out now in the comedy clubs, but, you know, uh, at the Melrose Improv, there was this legendary round table where if you were really in, Bud would let you sit there with him and all the big name comics. Well, the casting people from Paramount got to sit there. And since I was there with them, I got to sit there with them. So I got to meet all of these comics. And then because I knew all of their stuff, because I'd been watching them on Merv and Mike Duff, Douglas and like I said, The Tonight Show, um, I would comment on their sets and I would go, oh, remember that joke? Oh, I had forgotten that joke. Thanks. Or I would offer them a line and they go, oh, can I do that? And I'm like, sure, that would be awesome. And then a guy named Jimmy Brogan said to me, um, you know, people pay for jokes. You could charge money for that. I was like, oh, that's good to know. Thanks. So I started writing jokes for a bunch of comics and then eventually a lot of those comics would go, yeah, that joke doesn't sound right coming out of me. You should do that joke. And then comics would like say, why don't you get up? Come on, I'll get you up wherever. Um, or, Hey, do you want to come out on the road with me? We can like write for a week and you know, you can be my opening act. And so that's really how it got started. It was, there was no plan to be a comic. 
but yeah, it, really it, was, it was just like I say, it was the boom. It was it, there was so much opportunity. There was there were so many clubs. There was so much stage time. And if you had 15 minutes, 20 minutes, you could work, you know, 40, 50 weeks a year as an opener and then a middle. I, I got to the point where I like to say I was headlining the B rooms and middling the A rooms. <laughs> <laughs> that's working the birds and villes. Yeah. That's yeah, the, uh, yeah. So when, when, when you were writing for uh, and giving comics jokes, were there any jokes? And you don't have to tell us who or what the joke was. Were there any jokes that just stuck with you and they went on in their careers and flourished and you go, oh, that was my bit. Sure. I mean, tons of comics, tons of comics. I mean, some of the most memorable ones for me were the ones that the comics would do for their late night sets. Um, you know, the fact was the reason comics were burning through so much material is there was so much opportunity for comics on TV on, you know, on late night and on basic cable and premium right. cable. I mean, comics were burning through more material than they had ever done before. Like most comics, they sort of put together a set and then they could sort of tour around with that set and maybe they'd go on TV every once in a while, but they didn't burn through material at that same rate. And then mid-80s when people were getting cable hours well then that material's all gone like where's the next stuff going to come from so guys like me who are writing jokes you know were really in demand so when leno started guest hosting on the tonight show i mean jay never really worked topical he really had never done a lot of topical stuff he maybe did some pop culture stuff about like commercials or whatever um yeah. But he was burning through a lot of topical stuff. So he had a bunch of guys that were feeding him stuff. And I remember one joke that I gave Jay was, this will really date this. So do you remember when uh, Michael Jackson was trying to buy the bones of the elephant man, oh, John Merrick? Yeah. That was like a big thing. Like John Merrick, the remains of the elephant man, Michael Jackson was trying to buy his remains. And so the joke I wrote for Jay was, uh, that the elephant man's family had countered with a bid on Michael's original nose. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I mean, that, that joke's really in a time capsule. Yeah, yeah but it's still funny. <laughs> yeah, but it still plays. I feel like maybe because I'm older. But I remember that when that was. Oh, that, I, that was such a big story. Oh, yeah. yeah. And now, how does it transfer from being a comic to going into, you know, you, you produce, you're kind of like a, a comic historian. You, you seem to know more about comedy than the average uh, industry person. Yes. Uh, I, I have been, uh, I've been called uh, everything from comedy rain man to the Ken Burns of comedy. <laughs> <laughs> I love so. I mean, obviously, the love of her—that was the buddy of her, the uh, the the love of comedy is very apparent. But like, you know, I, I go to your website and I was I was checking out, you know, everything, and you're not afraid to talk about the 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 roots of comedy. You're not afraid to talk. No, I, in fact, I love it. I you know I uh, you know I teach a TV development class at the the Tisch School of the Arts at NYU. And one of the things that I like to talk to my students about is how did we get here? You know, I feel like because there's so much 
content. There's so much media everywhere. It all seems so perishable. And, uh, you know, everybody's on to what's next and what's next. And I'm always excited about what's next. But I like to look at it in the context of, you know, uh, 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 like a, like an evolutionary trajectory, right? How did we yes. get here? So my first guest for my class this year, three weeks ago, was Norman Lear. Wow. wow. Oh my That's God. sick. Really? And it was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. I'm, I'm really sorry you came on our podcast. You were just having a conversation with Norman Lear. If I had a dollar for everybody, some, every time somebody said to me, I was just talking to Norman Lear, now I'm hanging out with you. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you a story about Norman Lear. I do the warm-up for the Dr. Oz show, and Norman Lear was a guest. Oh, really? It's the only time that I ever asked. At that point, it's the only time I'd ever asked to take a picture because I never, I never want to do that. I never want to get in the way. And and I said, I, I really want to get a picture with Norman Lear. And Dr. Oz goes, he never does this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and I have a great picture of Norman Lear. With, uh, you know, I'm like, it's, it's you know. Of course. Well, I'll tell you guys. So uh, last year I was at the Creative Arts Emmys when they actually could have the Emmy Awards in person. Right. And uh, I took my kid out with me. So my daughter was then, she had just turned 12. It was just the two of us. We went out to California and we were at the governor's ball afterwards. And Norman had won the Emmy for, you know, that uh, he did, he and Kimmel did the uh, live in front of a studio yeah. audience recreations of his classic shows. Mm -hmm. And he won the Emmy for it last year, becoming at that time, the oldest Emmy recipient at age 97. And so I'm at the governor's ball and I'm trying to explain to my daughter who Norman is and how much he means to me. And she's like, oh my God, okay, okay, okay. And so we're there with Norman. And I said, can we please get a picture? And again, you know, you don't want to do something like that at the governor's ball, but I'm with my kid and I just, I feel like when is she ever going to meet Norman Lear again? And Norman's daughter takes my iPhone to take the picture and Norman reaches down and hands his Emmy to my kid and said, you should probably hold this. Wow. Oh, my God. And so I have this picture. It's me and Norman and my kid holding his Emmy, and I'm crying. Oh, wow. He, he was just, when I met him, he just was such a wonderful man. And and like, he's 97 years old, and he's still going so strong. He's, so he's 98 now, and this past week, he just won again for the second installment of Live in Front of a Studio Audience. Really? He became the oldest Emmy recipient again. again. He beat him. First and second place. He beat himself. Your brother wow. would be pissed, Tom. All <laughs> right. <laughs> this guy's the most competitive guy I've ever met That's in my funny. life. Him and his brother, just they compete about everything. That's how he became a professional Can gambler. I, That's an I, absolutely I amazing story. Say, I feel like Norman Lear probably weighed in without me knowing who Norman Lear was on my psychological psychological development as a child. Oh, because oh, without a doubt. My mother said I used oh, to yeah. have to fall asleep to All in the Family. Like, I would have to. Wow. So, and it's funny because I guess it almost created some of my thought process. I think even as a child, I was able to recognize the sarcasm and the play upon how ridiculous that, that was. And I think mm -hmm. he did such a great job of conveying that to even if you didn't know what it was, your subconscious got it. Like, yeah. this is so over the top bad that it's funny. 
Right. You know? yeah. So I was like, that really is a genius, like super genius. And I didn't know who he was then. Yeah. Until later on in life. <laughs> but sick. So good. So, so good. sorry. But you started you started uh documenting a lot of this stuff and you worked for the TV Academy. Well, so I've had a long relationship with the TV Academy. I, you know, I became a member of the TV Academy as soon as I started my career of working, you know, as a development executive and as a producer. And really early on, um, the uh, the guy who really deserves the credit for this um, was, I think, at that time, the head of Disney TV. It was a guy named Dean Valentine who had this idea to start this project that was then called the Archive of American Television. The concept around the project was really kind of based on Spielberg's Shoah project, where you know Spielberg was going around the world trying to record interviews with every survivor of the Holocaust possible to document as many stories in the sort of first-person accounts as he could get. And Dean Valentine had this idea that a lot of the people who were there at the birth of television, at the very beginning of television, were still around, but they were dying quickly. And so Dean had this idea, and he happened to know that I was friends with Milton Berle. I actually met Milton when I was a comic. Um, wow, way. And so they wanted Milton, since he was television's first star, Mr. Television, <laughs> to do an interview. So. I, on behalf of this project, I wasn't involved yet, um, went to Milton and said, would you do one of these interviews? And he said, sure, if you do the interview. So, okay, why not? So I got to interview Milton, which was fabulous. I got to ask him everything I've ever wanted to ask him. And also I'd heard just from being friends with him, hours upon hours of stories just from sitting at the Friars Club listening to him tell stories. So I kind of knew where the gold was, but I got to ask him a lot of great stuff too. Anyway, the interview I think is like five hours long and um, culminates with probably uh, the question that most people would want to ask Milton in an interview. <laughs> I know what it is. So the last question is, Milton, is it true? <laughs> That's all you have to say. <laughs> do you know what he's talking about, Kahuna? I do not. Milton Berle was famous. Uh, the word was he had a huge dick. <laughs> Can I just tell you something? Um, again, hang on. Let me just check. Honey, Abby's still not in the room, right? <laughs> um, it was true. Wow. Oh. Now, so let me just tell you, I saw it. What? Really? What? Well, you need to take a double take, right? <laughs> well, my joke is that the reason I saw it twice, it was it was so big, you had to see it in installments. <laughs> and was it, was it everything it was cracked up to be, or was it? Well, the first time I saw it, Milton, I, I had... Uh, he was old and tired when he saw it, but it was still <laughs> bigger than most. I, I was over at Milton's, he had a condo in the Wilshire Corridor, and I was over at his place early one morning, Milton was not a morning person, but he was sitting in a bathrobe, no underwear, knees like in two separate time zones. Right. <laughs> and I walk in and just pinned it like, there it is. <laughs> the monster. And can I tell you something? A shower, not a grower is what you're telling us. <laughs> I mean, first of all, flaccid, it had two bends. Wow. Um, <laughs> the kneecap and an elbow. <laughs> and I will just tell you, 
I actually swooned. <laughs> I, I, I'm telling you, this is not an exaggeration. I went like this. I went, oh, this is me looking at Milton, right? I go, so Milton, I, oh. <laughs> the second time I saw it, I had to make sure. So I'm having lunch with him at the Friars Club. He's in the urinal next to me in the men's room at the Friars Club. And I just kind of, you know, the little little peek. I had to make sure. Yeah. And Milton turns and he sees me looking over. He goes, is this what you wanted to see? Real <laughs> on me. Oh, my God. <laughs> I slip and fall because, remember, this is the men's room. Look at your knee, Club. So you've got to know that the men who are in there don't have the best aim in the world. So that floor is slick and wet. Huh? The one in the basement downstairs is that? No, the no, no. This is on the, no. This is the Friars Club that used to be in Beverly Hills. Oh, Beverly Hills. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I slip, I fall, I'm on the floor, and Milton, without zipping up or putting it away, reaches his hand out to help me up, and I'm like, you know what? Just put that monster away. I'll get up. Don't, don't worry. There's a rope here that'll help me up. <laughs> Rapunzel. Rapunzel. <laughs> Let down your cock. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's the wow. stories of my uh verifying the legend of milton Berle. because i heard him on stern years ago and howard goes come on let me see it come on come on and show it just show me and milton girls goes i'll tell you what you take yours out and i'll take out just enough to beat you <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's the classic story, you know. That's a that's a classic story of uh, Milton and Forrest Tucker. Mm -hmm. Forrest Tucker were were were, were both uh, supposed to have you know, the most impressive yeah. manhood in Hollywood, and so they were in, I think, the steam room at Hillcrest Country Club, and like like tens of thousands of dollars are exchanging hands in the steam room, and these guys are sitting there like, "What's going on?" Like, Come on, we know about you. We know about you. Wow. you know, there's a lot of money on this, guys. So Forrest Tucker goes, sure, why not? And he whips off this towel in like a grand flourish. And in what was, as Milton described it, a moment of stunned awe, penetrating the silence, one of Milton's writers, a guy named Jay Burton said, all right, Milton, just take out enough to win and let's get out of here. Really? <laughs> Really, the writers. See, the writers are always funny, the, but and, and <laughs> they're always so. But what I love is that Jay knew Milton was going to win. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean, like Santa Conta. This is yeah, like Cobra are you kidding Kai. Me? Obviously, if you <laughs> if you're wielding that sword, you are going to. Your friends will know. No, yeah. I feel like they've. If he's seen it, there's probably a few other people. He's been like, "That's what you're talking about, yeah. right there, right?" I'm not packing at all, and my friends know. <laughs> I would have been like, "Would you bring a knife to a gunfight?" <laughs> That's amazing. well. Real quick, let's play a clip from that awesome interview. Yeah, and then this part. Gets this will out. be where we play yeah. a clip. We don't have the clip. <laughs> you know, before well, we have yeah. the clip where I say Milton is it true, and his answer is pretty funny. It's at the very end of the interview. Oh, okay. Oh, oh cool. Can, can you write that down? For yeah, us? yeah. So it's at the very end. That'll be awesome. Wow. Also, by the way, there's a great bit 
in if you want to use it at the very top of the interview with Milton and I with two cigars. And you can see me when I'm, I think, 26 years old in the clip. So it's it, there's it's the only two shot of me and Milton at the very top of the interview. Yeah, that's, that's so cool. We'll do the two and the or with the cigar and then we'll do the that's cool. story about the cigar now now we don't have to watch it see like that's the <laughs> oh yay that's uh you just saved us a lot of work dan it's really funny kenny <laughs> it never gets old no. it never got old when charles Grodin did it it doesn't get old when dan does it <laughs> see like it's that's super funny that he was that close with Milton Berle. That's so freaking cool because growing up, Milton Berle was in well, my favorite movie of all time. He was a cameo in the Muppet movie. Oh, oh yeah. he was a car salesman. Yeah, and then he was on the Muppet Show because I grew up with those tapes, and that was my favorite fucking episode. He was the funniest dude oh, that I'm... ever participated with him. He did a whole number with Fozzie. <laughs> he did top banana with Fozzie, and I was like, "Oh, this is awesome!" And my mom was like, "When you're older, we'll show you more Milton Berle." I was wow. like, okay. there was something about Milton. Your mom's Burl. very cool. Yeah, you do have a very cool, cool mom because of that. <laughs> and the the other thing too, though, was I thought was interesting, and it makes me like have a flashback. Was Overton was on, and Overton talked about he made George Burns laugh when mm -hmm. he was a little kid. Yeah, and that's he was right. by the pool. And I had these flashbacks, and I remember as a little kid, and it's funny you say this about Milton Burrow, as a little kid, I would watch them and go, I know they're funny. Some yeah. of the times they would say something that I didn't get. It went over my head. Right, right, But I right. go, but I know it's funny. Right. Like, I just know because I had this, like, thing, the it factor. I yeah. Guess, like you know, pops. Dan, you were, talking, you were talking about what, staying up late and watching the movies. Mm -hmm. And um, – that's kind of gone for in this day and age. Like it's, I feel bad for and kids I, feel, I don't no, know because no. you could go down a rabbit hole now that we never could as kids. I mean, they could find it, but yeah, they're. But, but I'm saying TV presented it to you. Yeah, like you're not a kid's not going to go. Let me look up the Marx Brothers. Yeah, but you know, you know kid what I'm has saying? to find out about it to go to look go it look up. it up. Whereas TV would just bring it to you. I, I mean, you got you, every every week. Well, that's a big part of what I do with all of my sort of uh, obsessive comedy disorder projects, which is. Someone now needs to push curate these things and be a recommendation engine because the recommendation engine, as you rightly identify, was that was what was on. Why did we watch mm -hmm. I Love Lucy or The Honeymooners or The Dick Van Dyke Show, apart from the fact that they were great? It's also because that was what was on. That was yeah. on. But, yes. but do you think greater talent will be recognized now that there's so much more exposure to a multitude of talent well, that people so that might a, never have had. Like, I, I'm so interested in learning your how you had your opportunities, right? Because I've had a very weird life that I've been a, around a lot of celebrities. So, But I don't engage the same for some reason with certain celebrities that I do with uh, regular people here and there. Yeah, uh, some, some we just take to them with friends, right? Other people, it's almost like a weird dynamic, right? And that's what I find interesting when my my friends who I have a very good friend who is always in a celebrity circle. I've never been on a private jet. This kid's been on a million private jets with people, right? All the time. I don't know how he does it. So, but he's just always in an entourage. So now me, he's always like, "Why are you talking to them like that? Talk to them like you talk to everybody else. You're, everybody's always so drawn to you." He's like, "Just engage." And I remember I've been led into conversations with people not on the same path. So I'm in a circle, but I don't know if I feel specifically like i don't know how to breach a circle and that's what i have a question for you i'm like how did you first start like engaging yeah. in these circles 
right? Because from an outsider perspective, not non-comedy, non-celebrity, non this, non that, mm -hmm. you brought yourself like you're friends with uh, legends, like legendary legends, who yeah. who other true legends are like Richie never took a picture with somebody he wants to take a picture with Norman Lear. Right. You had the ability to be friends with Norman Lear, you know, or engage him on a different level. How did that occur? Like, how was that? Well, look, I, I was very lucky. I like to say I had geography on my side because I was born and raised in LA. LA yeah. So, you know, the fact is that it didn't seem uh, that uh, inaccessible. First of all, I went to school. Most of the kids I went to school with were the children of celebrities, all the famous people of that era. So my classmates in school were Bob Newhart's kids, Carol Newhart, uh, Carol Burnett's daughter, uh, daughters, wow. uh, Joan Rivers' daughter, Melissa, when she was Melissa Rosenberg, was you right. know we were on the swim team together. Um, so you're basically also, saying it was impossible to get in on the talent show. It was a birth lottery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. So, you know, when I was uh, when I was a kid, you know, my, look, my dad was a CPA and my mom was, you know, in retail, but their jobs seemed as normal as my friends' parents' jobs. Do you know what I mean? Wow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but also, I was really interested in this stuff. So, you know, the Dr. Demento show was on KMET in Los Angeles, and I could go to Tower Records and attend when Dr. Domeno was doing a live broadcast and meet everybody. And because I knew so much about this stuff, because I was just consuming it and studying it and trying to figure it all out, it wasn't, it wasn't that hard to put yourself in a circumstance where if you want to pursue it, it's right there. You know, like I played Little League Baseball in the park across the street from 20th Century Fox studio, you know, on, on Pico in LA, because that was by my house. Um, you know what I mean? So I think that had a lot to do with it. Absolutely, yeah. I hit a ball so hard one time, knocked off Ted Danson's toupee. I was going to say Tom <laughs> Selleck. It's Tom Selleck right in there. <laughs> a joke would have been good, Mark, except Cheers was at Paramount, which was in Hollywood, and I, I was at 20th Century. He fact-checked me, all right? Yeah, sorry. That joke. I trumped it. I just made it up. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So you're 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 interviewing these people like you're Hang saying on, my phone like phone is going crazy. I have a feeling it's Provenza. Can I get Provenza? Street nuts. So not only does he not come on, but then he interrupts the show. Provenza. This is what we're dealing with now. <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome. I love that he even has like a squeaky clown horn. Right. Uh, By the way, it's we, not Renza. It's somebody else. I, I, I set up a friend of mine to interview Mel Brooks, so he's now excited because he just interviewed Mel Brooks. And he oh, wants my to, God. He that, wants that, to tell that, me all about it. Favorite. Like, Mel Brooks Jesus, was another Dan, one you. I grew oh, up on. Are you kidding? That I was like, the History of the World, uh, another one. Like, when, uh, one night, I was in a bar really? one night. I was in a bar one night, and we got into this discussion about the greatest movie ever made. And someone said, Godfather, and who said, you know, uh, whatever else and blah 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 and when they got to me i said blazing saddles and they were they thought i was kidding I go, no think about what he did in that movie yeah. think about what he got away with think about what you know what the statements he made and, and think about how goddamn funny that movie is there's not a moment in that movie that isn't just 
completely hysterically funny. It's and just joke incredible. after joke. It's after just nonstop. Joke. Yeah, it doesn't stop. But, it doesn't stop. But then let me ask you guys, because all three of you are uh, are in on this and see it from a bigger picture. Does cancel culture like st- like stifle that? Be, the Absolutely. beauty of somebody like Mel Brooks or Norman Lear or somebody that's showing you what it is by the ridiculousness of what, what society is, right? And almost, I feel like that was more of a proponent to change society in a better path than this cancel culture is that's shutting down like, he said this, she said that, don't uh, say I this, just, don't say I that. Think, I Can just I tell you something? Uh, here's you are, something please. you probably wouldn't even remember. Norman Lear had a hard time getting All in the Family on television in the first place. Mm-hmm. He had to pilot it three times. He did two pilots for ABC before the third pilot got picked up by CBS because the wow. network was nervous about the show. And when the show aired, they had to put a warning in front of the show for the first few episodes to mm-hmm. say, this show is going to use words Ooh. and language and express ideas that may make some viewers uncomfortable and you may not want to you know, watch this with your children. And I talked to Norman about that with my class. Wow. wow. See, I, I, I want to take your class. I was going to say, now I got to go back no, to school. I really want to take your class. <laughs> I, that's what I'm going to blame radio gods on. I'm going to say, I'm just keep taking it out. I'm trying to keep taking it out <laughs> to try to get it to work. Um, but I, so you're, you're doing, you're cataloging this stuff with the TV Academy and then you start getting in the producing. Well, yeah, that was the, this work with the TV Academy was sort of at the same time as I you know, started my career as a development executive and a producer because I've been doing that for you know more than twenty five years. So you're doing both, but what got you into starting to pr- produce and develop and do all that stuff? I, well, okay. It's really what I wanted to do. I mean, look, being around stand up and doing stand-up and writing for comics. I mean, look, that was all stuff I always loved. Love, yeah. But, but, you know, since I was a kid, I was a make-stuff person. I started making, you know, little movies when I was, you know, 13, 14 years old. Um, so I knew I wanted to be a producer. I was just trying to figure it out. It's interesting how the two kind of fed each other. Like, so the first time I ever met a television executive, I was writing jokes on a Bob Hope special. Wow. Wow. I was 16 years old. I was writing jokes on a Bob Hope special. And I met this guy, Brandon Tartikoff, who at the time was the president of NBC. Don't know who he is. <laughs> well, the people at home might not know who he is. So let's. let's I was joking. No, Nine I know out of that. Ten, but... have to. I think I'm not. Well, I didn't know who he was. The important thing is, at that time, the president of NBC, I think he was 31 at the time, by the way. Yes. And I had no idea who he was. So I was like, <laughs> What does it mean to be the president of a network? Like, I, I, I don't even know what that job is. I didn't really understand it. I was 16. I was just there writing jokes. And he said, my job is to find the most talented people and give them the most hospitable environment to do their best work. And I thought, like, wow. Uh, I'm going to remember that. That's going to talk to a comedy club owner. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, really. My God. <laughs> Sit over there. Uh, he so, is the man who developed. So I knew what I want. I mean, I went to film school when I was, you know, right out of high school, and that was always what I was sort of pointing myself towards. So by the time I got my first development job, you know, I, it was that was always kind of the plan, you know. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, so you, I mean, I hate to just bring this directly back to me, but I feel like Dan, you are living the Mark Riccadonna dream. If yeah. I grew up in the LA. Mark Riccadonna dream, the Chris, the Big Kahuna dream as well. <laughs> Jesus, that is awesome. I you, mean, guys, you guys need to dream bigger. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love uh, it. Nah, you you're wrong. You don't understand how. Like, I just, I'm so. I got excited say, about what you're just telling these stories and talking about. For how me, it was happening. Milton Berle lived my dream. Having that huge wax. I, <laughs> I wish I had I'm that. Good on that front. So, Milton, oh. Oh. why do you think they call him the Big Kahuna? <laughs> so, I guess what I where I want to go with this right now is, so you have this amazing history appreciation, which is awesome. But you're also part of like everything that's in the culture now, as far as comedy. I mean, looking at what you've been involved in, stuff like, uh, you know, Maria Banford's uh, stuff and sure. uh, Portlandia. Like, so when you're taking on a project, what what compels you to the project? Like, what what's your first thing you look at? And then how do you continue to find interest in whatever the project is? Well, the thing is, if you have an appreciation for what has historically been great, hopefully you will have a sense of, again, where things fit in this ongoing evolution of the form, the form of stand-up, the form of film, the form of television. Um, and, you know, I'm always thinking about what's next, what's new, what's exciting. I mean, I love to be a, you know, a preservationist for the things that I love that inspired me, but then I'm fortunate also to work with people who are similarly inspired and you have a kind of common core group of references. You have a kind of common language and things that you're drawing upon. So when you're talking to you know, the people who are developing a show like Portlandia and you're talking about SCTV and the kids in the hall and the shows that kind of led up to Portlandia, you know, you can really, you can really speak in, you know, a kind of shorthand, you know what I mean? Yeah, mm -hmm. there's an appreciation and a, a yeah, shorthand. For I it. mean, the, the fact, one of the great joys of my life was getting to introduce Maria Bamford to Jonathan Winters, because oh, I God. saw so much of Jonathan and what Maria did in terms of like the absolute integrity and the kind of character work that she does. And yeah. so being able to introduce Maria to Jonathan, I mean, it's just one of the great joys of my life. That's, that's, that's very intense. cool. Right? And she's a genius in every sense of the word in the same ways that John was. Yeah, absolutely. And But it's, it's, it's odd, and like we were talking about earlier, that it's uh, uh, this generation doesn't have things put on their laps so they have to actually go out and research it how do you know. feel about the young I'm going to I'm going to retort to that in that I feel like this generation idolizes certain people but when you hear those people cuz me personally like if you would and I'm oh, I'm still older I'm not this generation but when you how old are you I'm 42 so I feel uh, like I'm, you're a baby you're I'm, a yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> you're adorable but if you are like, like if guys older than you, <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> but if you like, if you go out there and you start looking into your comic, I believe a lot of the young, young comics 
have had the influence of a, like so they'll mention this person influenced me. Then you start delving into that person, and I they say this person mentioned. But I think it's it's, it's me. I think, and I wanted to do a podcast with Jim Mandrinos about this, but I think it's the comics' responsibility to talk about the history of what it is. Like, who was the comic that Richie? Who's the comic in your eyes? And they don't have to be famous. Who's the comic that inspired you to continue? Whether it's somebody who did something nice for you or somebody one night you were Joey down Cola. and out and you saw them on TV. And you, Joey Cola. So Joey what? Cola. Now, if we're not, yeah, from the sense of when I, I opened for him at, back in 1991 and I was like, look at what he just did to this crowd. Like it was like, yeah. And I went, my God, if I could even come close to that. You know what I mean? And, yeah. And that became, that was like, wow. You know? So there should be a thing or a show or a something. And I wanted to do a podcast, but it's like, who's going to listen? But like you talk about Joey Cola. So your fans then will look in the Joey Cola. But then we could talk to Joey Cola. And who are the people that influenced you? Right. Can I tell you something, Mark? The interesting thing is, so the next... Um, project that I'm working on for Sirius XM because I do these uh, OCD projects. So OCD is what I'm self-diagnosed uh, with. It is my own disease. It is obsessive comedy disorder. <laughs> and so this, it's an audio documentary series, a multi-episode, multi-hour series about the comedy boom of the 80s. And the first episode the first episode is just talking to the stars of the comedy boom of the 80s about who inspired them. Wow. Awesome. So that's the first episode. Interesting. That's, I mean, you sent me uh, the clip from the Grammys. So, yeah, I did the, the last special I did for Sirius was I did the 60 year history of the Comedy Grammy Award and going through how the recording industry has changed, how comedy has changed, and how the award itself has evolved over those 60 years. And there's great stories in there from, you know, Bob Newhart talking about the making of his first album, The Button-Down Mind of Bob Newhart, which won the Grammy for Album of the Year. Not just the comedy Grammy, Album of the Year. One really? No, I never knew that. Right? One of only two comedy albums that ever won the big prize at the Grammys. And the interesting thing about that album, Button Down Mind of Bob Newhart, when he went to record that album, he'd never been on a nightclub stage before, ever. Holy wow. shit. That is, that's so that's weird. That's Kevin Bacon tie-in, Missy Grankowitz. Mi yeah, we, was, we just had a guest on, Missy Grankowitz, who she made a... Uh, an album, an album, her, her third time on stage. Yeah, had no idea. Nominated for a Grammy. I got nominated. Didn't, yeah, didn't, didn't win. make it. But and it was only her like third it was her time. Third time on yeah. stage. So you're saying there's hope for me? No, <laughs> no, there, there's no hope for you. There's no hope for you. But anyway, so the Grammy special was the uh, was the was the first of these OCD specials that I did for SiriusXM. What so was wait, the other? Real fast, real fast. Let's. We're gonna play a clip from it okay sorry we have a clip there we go and then i'll put uh, it here because you know I'm not and this is where we put the clip is. in okay continue talking <laughs> what was the other comedy album that won grammy of the year you said uh, the, first family. Family. Say first, what? the first family 
Oh, Meter. the first family. Okay. The Vaughn Meter album. The yeah, the Vaughn Meter, family. Sure. sure. Yeah, sure. That makes sense. Richie, you could have taken money off of me there because I didn't know that. Yeah, that the, makes sense. I probably. Like, so, <laughs> well, I will tell you this. Talking about young comics and or young people not knowing, like, because we, we had a thrust upon us as far as the honeymooners at five o'clock at night. Yeah, and, and, yeah. Um, I am blown away at how many comedians that I meet who are in their 20s who go no 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 who go you knew bill hicks like that's amazing i don't know what it is i knew hicks i knew hicks too but i can't get over where'd you know hicks did you know me just something from here in new york a few times and and i wasn't best friends or anything we i liked them a lot and um i have a great bill hicks story if you want to go ahead you go ahead you go first you go first yeah okay so I met Hicks when he was out in L.A., and he was miserable in L.A. He would come and hang around the comedy store. And again, at that time, Kinnison was kind of the big swinging dick at the store. And he and Sam had had some kind of falling out. Um, I, 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 it's not my story to tell. I mean, I kind of know some of the details of it. But let's just say that Sam exerted a certain amount of influence, and Hicks was not getting a lot of stage time. So we were hanging out a lot and partying a lot. and. I was talking about all these old comedy albums and I was telling him about, oh, I think it was Murray Roman. Here's a, there's a guy for you, you cat to look up. The comic named Murray Roman um, was uh, Tommy Smothers' favorite comedian and Keith Moon's favorite comedian. Okay? <laughs> and so this guy, Murray Roman, had an album called You Can't Beat People Up and Have Them Say I Love You. And it's a really interesting album because it's a live stand-up album and it's mixed with this kind of um, psychedelic rock of the era. So it's a real sort of like audio collage pastiche kind of comedy album. So that album and another one called A Blind Man's Movie are these really... Um, experimental kind of comedy albums in terms of the presentation of the form. So Hicks and I were up all night partying, doing a lot of drugs and listening to these albums over and over and over. And he was at my house. Now I'm 17 at this point. I think Hicks was seven years older than me. So maybe he's 24, something like that. And we were just up all night. And this is when I was living with my parents. So the next morning, my mom makes us breakfast, and Bill, being a good Southern boy, was like, you know, thank you, ma'am. You know, this is wonderful, ma'am. You know, I really appreciate your hospitality. You know, very courtly, very gentle. He was very sweet, actually, that way. Um, And so when he left, it was just so funny because I am just, like, wasted. I've been up all night. I've been partying. And the only thing I remember my mom saying is, that Bill Hicks seems like such a nice young man. (laughs) (laughs) i I so badly wanted this podcast to be recorded at my parents basement in ohio (laughs) because my parents have had more celebrity comics not big big celebrities like like not celebrities like mel brooks and norman lear like but like Headliner comics yeah. have more comics have stayed at my parents' house, and e- even with me not being there as their opening act, they're passing through the Midwest, and 
I go, just stop by my parents' house. They'll cook you dinner and you can have a home cooked meal. And like these great comics would stop in at my parents' house, have dinner. And the next thing you know, like, do you want something to drink? My brothers, you know, hey, uh, there's a comic here. Hold on. Here's two cases of beer. (laughs) They'd hang out and then they'd be like, just stay in the guest room. Just hang out. And it's like my parents love comedians right. so much. And you hear all the nightmare stories of comics. My mom and dad have nothing but like, and they're just sweet guys. Well, and they love right. a good home-cooked meal. And they're mm-hmm. good people. And it's like you get a little uh, uh, hometown feel, you know, like you get your, your mom gave Bill. And, and your parents love it because I know, but he was up all up. night doing coke and listening. To this. It's so funny. Yeah, but they don't know that part. <laughs> <laughs> no, Booker's had no idea. You want me to? He was all, a- all right. So, 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 Jeffy, tell your story now. <laughs> <laughs> he was at Caroline's one night, and uh, I got someone offered me tickets. I went to see him, and it was a Sunday night. There were only like twenty people in the room. He even got on stage and went, "I've had more people in my bed." and he's doing his act and it wasn't like a bill hicks crowd or anything and i mean he was really spewing i mean he was really letting go letting go and it's before i was i had just started in comedy so i didn't know that much and i remember being like this guy is fucked up man right (laughs) he's doing geraldo rivera giving birth on style he's doing all kinds of fucked up shit and they had announced that he'd been on David Letterman show and 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 uh, and uh, halfway through the show he goes I'm bored just who who's got questions which I always think about now when I'm like what a cool thing that was because you don't know where that can go it's great for yeah. him it's great for you as a performer it's great for the audience it's the audience are going oh my god he and, just made and people this up. people start asking him questions and, and I raised my hand and he goes yeah and I go you said they said you were on Letterman and he goes yeah I go well we just rushed a half hour of your act. What five minutes did you get out of that to go on Letterman? <laughs> and he started laughing. Two years later, I opened for him at Jimmy's Comedy Alley in Queens, and I tell him that story, and he remembered it. And it was oh, and, that's and, awesome. And we worked together like four or five times after that. And he always thought that was really funny. That like he said, I remember that question. That was a good question. You know, <laughs> so he goes, he goes, I was particularly vile that night. <laughs> you know what? He was he was such a good guy, but if he liked you. It felt like a great compliment because he was also a real comedy snob. Yes, he was. And he told me he didn't like my act, but he liked me. That's funny that you say that. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Well, I have my last memory of seeing him. So I was playing a club in Houston called Spellbinders. I played yeah. Spellbinders. a great club. Yeah, the Ice House used to book that room. Yeah, I yeah. The Ice House used to book that room. So I was in this place and the guy I was working with uh, if I really thought about it, I could probably come up with his name. Actually, I just came up with his name. I'm not going to mention his name. But, let, but let's just say he was he was the kind of guy who, who did well playing certain rooms in the South. Right. That's all he did, um, and no one's ever heard of him. But he used to do, like, juggling, and he used to do a thing, like a pantomime thing to the theme from Rawhide. And, uh, you know, he used to have, like, a lasso he would, like, Whip around. It's Tom Panis's act. <laughs> no, I know where it took it from. I and know. So, it is. Go ahead. So I'm standing in the back of the room with 
Hicks. Hicks is not on the bill. He just happened to be in Houston at the same time. And so we were going to get together and go out and get something to eat after the show. And I remember just standing there watching this guy and then watching Bill and watching this guy and watching Bill. And he only said one word and he said it over and over and over. It was fantastic. This is Bill. He's just watching this guy and he goes, Jesus. <laughs> and the inflection every time was different. It would be, Jesus. <laughs> and you go, Jesus. <laughs> you did it, Bill. You're Christian. <laughs> and I bet the guy was killing, right? Destroying. Yeah. Destroying. Years, later, years later, Provenza and I um, wrote a character into a pilot that we wrote for Showtime that never got made, but we wrote in this character uh, of, a, of the world's worst prop comic named Mr. Popularity. And <laughs> That's oh, great. my God. And it was sort of based on this guy. <laughs> Please use that character oh name my in something God. in the future. That's just incredible. Well, we did a lot of reading of this pilot, and Kurt Braunohler played Mr. Popularity. <laughs> he had a great cast for that. Uh, J.B. Smoove was in it. Uh, there was a bunch really? of wow. yeah, there was a bunch of great people who were in that in that reading. Interesting. It's it's such a uh, throughout the years though. Who were you most? Uh, have you had an in awe moment where you just almost fumbled? No, but like where you fumbled talking, you couldn't understand. Like I sure. Can't, Sure. Oh my God. Like more, probably the most memorable one for me was when I got to open for Carlin. Wow. Yeah. What? Yeah. yeah. I get to do two That's shows. You get to go up and tell wow. comedy in front of. Right. And I, and I was nowhere near ready, nowhere near ready. But the guy who ran this club in LA, Igby's, Jan Smith, Igby, sure. knew whom, how much I loved George. And so I did you know, a couple of shows opening for George Carlin. And uh, listen, I if I told you I did great, it would be a lie. If I told you I did terrible, I honestly don't remember the show. I probably did fine. The only thing I will tell you is that George was unbelievably gracious mm -hmm. and gave me his phone number and kind of gave me this like, soul bro handshake and said, Hey man, we're brothers in arms. You call me. Yeah. Anytime. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I met him one night at Dangerfields and he could not have been nicer to unbelievably. Yeah. And, for, and for years, he was always so kind to me. Yeah. Did you do him? But in awe, it doesn't even begin to describe how I felt being in. Right. 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 Begin to like touch it. Yeah. Cohen has a question for you. Did you end up interviewing him for the Television Academy interview? Because I know he has one. Yes. No, I did not do the interview with George for the TV Academy, um, unfortunately. Although it's a very good interview. Um, and a good question, Cohen. Yeah. Which is one of your favorite interviews? Wow. Um, Top there's, three. There's a few. Or let's, yeah, let's go in a great, great idea. Top, top three or five. You know, so you don't have. Like You're killing it, Kona. The Sid Caesar interview is great because Sid is – he's kind of unknowable. I mean, the thing about Sid – and maybe you'll find this clip and you'll pull this up. We will. I asked Sid, <laughs> um, you know, 
because he did so many different characters and he had so many different dialects, you know, but very rarely spoke as himself, very rarely spoke as Sid Caesar. And the thing that was very revealing to me was he said that was the hardest part of any show. He said, you know, if I could be Professor Von Know-it-all or any of these characters he would do, he goes, no problem. He said, but the hardest part for him was to hit the mark and say, I'm Sid Caesar, welcome to your show. Sid wow. That part made him nervous. Wow. Well, let's show wow. a clip of that right now. Clip here. Wow. Clips here. Okay. But, but Sid, is, because I knew him at least well enough to, you know, really like, get into stuff with him and knew so much of his work, it's a really, it's an interview I'm really proud of because I, I don't think Sid was ever as, um, I don't want to say revealed, but I don't, I don't think Sid was ever as comfortable in any other interview I saw. So I think yeah. that it's great because Sid's so great. Mm -hmm. um, the one with Jonathan Winters means a lot to me just because Jonathan, I mean, Jonathan was family to me. Jonathan, you know, there are three funerals I've ever produced in my life. My mom, my dad, and Jonathan. Wow. Um, wow. And, and so, you know, that's his art on the wall here in my live in my uh, dining room. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, Jonathan, I mean, Jonathan is in my house, literally is in my house. I had a connection to him as a little kid. I don't know that I could, if I'd met him, that I could talk. And by the way, when I say Jonathan is in my house, I mean, literally Jonathan is in my house. Oh, you have ashes? Oh, are you, my are you God. kidding me? Oh, my God. No I'm, way. That's crazy. No way. I, we might have to go out when he shows us. Yeah, we, I think we have to. And Plus, now, we've been now, for over an hour. And now you can yeah. say Jonathan Little was on your podcast. Wow. Look at this. Oh, my God. That's Jonathan Winters. After, oh his, God. after his memorial service. Here, I'll give you a story to end on. You want a story to end on? Yes. Uh, yeah. So, because oh, we haven't told a good God. one yet, Dan. Okay. <laughs> Damn it. So when Jonathan died, I was in uh, Stockholm, Sweden, uh, working on a show for IFC. And Robert Klein, who I introduced to Jonathan, called me to say he had died. Um, and so immediately I was in touch with his daughter. And they said they were going to wait till I got back to plan the service. They um, set a date, making sure I could come out to California. And they... Um, reserved the libero theater in santa barbara but beyond that they didn't know what they wanted to do so i said well you know what i'll cut like a a video i made these videos of my parents for their services i'll make one for jonathan it wound up being 42 minutes so we cut it into four 10 minute hunks and we showed it throughout the service but they didn't know what else they wanted to do so his daughter said why don't you come out early and you'll help me plan it and i literally in like three days, put the whole thing together, figured out who all the guest speakers would be. I slept in Jonathan's bed in his house by myself. His daughter was at her house. So I'm in Jonathan's bed in his house by myself. And we decided that we would put like a tableau on stage. Jonathan collected toys. He had this hat rack that were full of hats that he would put on when he played all the different characters. So we kind of created this sense of him we had his chair that he used to sit in with an ashtray with the last third of the last cigar he ever smoked still in the ashtray. And then on the table, 
his Hopalong Cassidy lunchbox. <laughs> the morning of the service, his daughter says, you're going to MC the service. I hadn't planned on being the host of it, so I wrote something very quickly. And I'm taking a shower, and I hear a voice. I'm in his shower in his bathroom. Now, I know you're going to think I'm bullshitting or I'm crazy. No, not at all. I'm telling you that as clear as he was standing in the room, his voice literally bouncing off the tile, I heard Jonathan's voice. I race downstairs. My hair is still wet. I race downstairs, and I tell Lucinda, his daughter, what I heard. Her eyes got wide like this. And it was him giving me instructions of what he wanted me to do in the service. She said, we're doing it. I go on stage. I introduce all the guest speakers. And Richard uh, Lewis is there. And uh, Bonnie Hunt and Robert Klein. And all these wonderful people who, Frank Sinatra Jr., people who knew Jonathan for years and years and years. And by the time I get to the end of the service, it's about two hours. And it really felt like a show. I mean, there were a lot of laughs. Like I say, there was, you know, 40 minutes worth of material of John performing. By the time we get to the end of the service, I say to the crowd, I go, I think this has been a great show. And it should have been a show. John would have wanted it to be a show. But there's one performer I think we all would agree we wished had been on the stage with us. I go over, I grab the Hopalong Cassidy lunchbox, and I hold it up, and I go, guess what? He was on stage the whole time. We put his ashes in the lunchbox, and that's what John said to me. John said, put me in the lunchbox. That's what I heard him say. Oh, my God. The whole crowd was like, oh. Oh, my God. And so, went, Jesus. So afterwards, <laughs> afterwards, we're back at the house. I'm just drained. I'm exhausted. And John's daughter, Lucinda, goes like this. I go into the kitchen. She's got the lunchbox open. And there's this baggie full of John's ashes. And she says, do you want to take some of Daddy home with you? Oh, my God. Oh, wow. So this is surreal. I had, I was on, because I'd been traveling, I was on antibiotics. So I take the last like amoxicillin pills out of this pill bottle and she takes like a tablespoon out of the silverware drawer and two two big scoops of John goes in my little pill bottle and they oh. fly home with me to New Jersey, which was hilarious because my friend Wayne Fetterman, who's a comic you guys might know, was on, the, was on the plane and he goes, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm flying back. I was out in California for Jonathan Winter's service. I said, in fact, John's on the plane. He's like, what? And I had to explain. I said, Jonathan's on the plane. There he is. So, so when Lucinda gave me the ashes, she said, now don't snort any of daddy trying to get funnier. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Punchline on top of punchline. So my wife said, you can't leave Jonathan Winters in a pill bottle. So she bought me this little urn to put Jonathan's remains. So I'm transferring him from the pill bottle to this little urn. And I got some of them on my finger. So I snorted. <laughs> That's drinks, jokes, and storytelling. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on YouTube or wherever you podcast.
We also would appreciate spreading the word. Let anyone who may enjoy us know about us. We appreciate the plug. Special thanks to a shared universe studios, realize records, and why not for the great music.